Welcome to the Sports Psych MD podcast, episode number three, Concussion. Today, Arm and I dive deep in discussing concussion. We look at the top 10 high school sports for concussion, and the list may surprise you. Uh, we go into detail on the NFL concussion protocol. We look at chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. We detail the famous case of Aaron Hernandez. And Armin brings up an important topic. He touches on the significance of being a professional athlete in the African-American community. This is a topic that will certainly spawn a new podcast in the future. But I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you guys do too. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back. Ladies and gentlemen. How you doing? Welcome. Welcome back, y'all. We are? Sports Ike MDs. And this is the Sports Ike MD podcast, episode number three, I think. I think so. Today we're talking about Armin's favorite topic. Actually, it's not, but But I banged you over the head with this topic. Yeah, you did. But it's cool. Now, this is actually a great topic, y'all. I mean, if you watch football... If you who, watch football. Who wouldn't want to talk about head trauma? Exactly. Come yeah. On. <laughs> it's actually a really, really uh, important topic for psychiatry, believe it or not, because it turns out that a traumatic brain injury, is a, it's a syndrome. So it means it's sort of a constellation of symptoms, variation of symptoms that are required to make the diagnosis. It's a diagnosis that's made really by physical exam and history. And turns out that probably about half of the symptoms of traumatic brain injury are psychiatric as opposed to neurologic, which would be the other half. So we often, as psychiatrists, will get patients in our office that have had traumatic brain injury and have ongoing psychiatric symptoms related to that, that trauma. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, traumatic brain injury or TBI it's essentially a pretty rough concussion. Yeah. Concussion and TBI, some people say those can be used interchangeably. That's right. I would probably say that a concussion is like a mild TBI. But yeah, we're going to use the word, or the, I guess the acronym TBI a lot. So traumatic brain injury or concussion. Yeah. You know, obviously there are certain sports that really lend themselves to the, the, the players suffering from concussion and traumatic brain injury. So we're going to talk about some of those. And we're going to talk about some high-profile athletes that have oh, big suffered, time, yeah, from I definitely heard from of them. concussion. But, and let me ask you this, Armin. I feel like have you ever had a concussion? Because looking back in my career in sports, I, I don't. I think I probably had one maybe in football, but I, I probably had more outside of sports. Yeah, man. Actually, turns out <laughs> I I had a concussion. Didn't realize it until uh, years later. When I was in medical school and learned what it means to have a concussion <laughs> and what that experience is like, but yeah, um, but yes, know. symptoms of concussion. There's it, it's such a just an array of symptoms that, it, like you said, it's a functional diagnosis. You make the diagnosis based off your physical exam, mm-hmm. kind of asking the person questions. But you can have headache, dizziness, feel off balance, a lot yep. of nausea. You can have amnesia, loss of memory. You can feel cognitively slowed. Uh, you can be sensitive to light and sound, disoriented, visual disturbances. Uh, your ears can start ringing. Kind of sounds like a migraine, right? Yeah. Those are a sure. lot of the physical physical stuff. But you also, more of the concerning things can be like if you lose consciousness, 
if anyone's watched MMA or NFL, you can see when someone like has that fencing posture where their arms kind of lock up and go up in the air and seize a little bit. You can be like slow to get up from a hit to the head. You can have this disoriented blank look on your face. Yeah. Um, and then kind of like Tori does right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I get, I get God, very. You guys should have seen this guy when he was describing this. He was like literally acting out a seizure. I like to use my hands, man. I'm hoping to go live, <laughs> go video live with this so they can see how animated we get. Yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, there's so many different symptoms. So you can, some of them are easy to pick up on, obviously, but some of them aren't. And then the thing about concussions, a lot of people want to hide the symptoms. Some of these you can't necessarily hide, but a lot of people, they don't want to lose that playing time, especially if you have a concussion in sports. Now, if you have one on the slopes, you might, you want to keep skiing with your buddies. But if you have a bad concussion with a huge migraine, there's no incentive for you to get back up there unless you're trying to impress some. Well, there's always that, you know. <laughs> but yeah, we, you do a history and evaluation. You do what's called neuropsych testing or neuropsychological testing. Yep. Essentially what that means is you, you ask a list of different questions. As easy as like doing a word recall. You give them three words, and you have them rep- repeat those words, and then ask them, what were those three words I told you five minutes ago? And what see were if they, those words, they can recall them. I didn't give you any words, but let me give you three words. Okay. Ball, okay. orange, okay. and honesty. I want you to remember those three words. I'm going to ask you again in about five minutes. Okay. All right. We'll see. So NFL and different professional leagues, they'll they'll actually get a baseline test in the offseason or in the preseason with these same kind of questions just to see how someone does at their baseline because everyone has a different different cognitive abilities, especially people in the NFL. There's such a wide range of individuals, so you want to get what their baseline is. Um, unfortunately, you hear about players like sandbagging these tests, so mm-hmm. essentially doing doing purposely doing worse so their baseline is worse so if they do get a concussion they can still pass there's something called maddox questions that's essentially like what i said recall and then orientation Um, right can you tell me those three words i told you to remember you you didn't give me up time you you still remember them of course okay so i'll give you a few more minutes okay all right Uh, so um when you're getting into after you diagnose the concussion like we said before um, diagnosing concussion, it's not a perfect science. And just like that, you you usually grade the severity on a scale one to three. So grade one is like a mild, grade two is moderate, grade three is severe. But unfortunately, uh, there's no consensus among the guidelines. And there's three uh, guidelines that are actively being used, three separate different scales, essentially. Um, what I've gathered from these three different scales is that once there's a loss of consciousness, that's when it evolves into a more moderate or severe concussion. Um, So moving on from that, most concussion symptoms resolve within 7 to 10 days, but up to like 20% can continue on. And you can have this post-concussion syndrome that can last up to a year. Yeah. That sounds awful. Yeah, man. Being hungover? For a year, it's 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 crazy. Well, and I guess there's a life. And did we alcohol. talk about the increased risk for certain chronic mental illnesses? True, true. You know, so, like schizophrenia. Oh, um, yeah. Can you believe that? Big so, deal. That's crazy. Uh, brain trauma, TBI, concussion. Everyone has a different predisposition, a different sensitivity to how much head trauma they can withstand um, before they develop, say, like a bipolar disorder or before they develop anxiety or depression or have cognitive slowing. So certain risk factors may include, let's see, a history of substance use. Right. Makes your brain more vulnerable. Right. A history of neglect, a history of physical abuse, sexual abuse. And then there's also like genetic factors like APOE, 
Mm. Oh, that's just, the one. <laughs> I don't know if they're ready for that one. That's the one related to Alzheimer's. So yeah, essentially concussions increase your risks of having all different types of mental illness, including anxiety, depression, PTSD, panic, OCD, mania, and even schizophrenia. The one yeah. where you hear voices. That's right. You Paranoid. Think your, your mailman is like putting anthrax in your mail or poisoning your food. Right. Or even sometimes thinking like the the sun is like talking to you or something. Oh yeah. It's like a bizarre delusion. Do you have any weird delusions or things that you think may may or may I guess you wouldn't know if they're delusions though. No, definitely not. Um, I, I have come across a couple of delusions coming from from you, however. Conspiracy theories. One delusion. In particular, is that Peyton Manning's a better quarterback than Tom Brady? Well, that's debatable. That's a, that's a delusion. For that's sure. debatable. Look um. at the stats: two and one <laughs> in the AFC Championship games. Um, <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll have. We should do a podcast on con- conspiracy theories, like Tom Brady not being a system quarterback. So um, let's get into. There's so many different things. We talked about post concussion syndrome that can last up to a year. Essentially, you continue to have like insomnia and anxiety and can't concentrate and photosensitivity, like you have a migraine for a full year because you got knocked in the head, peewee football. And then also I said concussions decrease your alcohol tolerance. And you know what? Concussed athletes, their studies have been shown that they're more likely to abuse alcohol. So that's not a good cycle to get into. No, not at all. And then something specifically close to my heart because I am studying to be a child adolescent psychiatrist is second impact syndrome, meaning if you do not give your brain, your body, your mind, enough time to recover from the initial concussion and you suffer a second concussion within that recovery period, you're at risk of dying Mm -hmm. because your brain hasn't fully recovered. And this uh, kids are highly at risk of that because their brains aren't fully developed. It has a lot to do with the blood system in your brain, essentially. I don't want to get into too much details. Yeah. Um, Talk about the catecholamine surge. Right. Yeah, man. And um, it turns out that among high school sports, the top five sports for concussion incidents include as follows from the top, rugby. Probably not a big surprise. Makes sense. Um, no, no helmets. Yeah. A lot of hitting. Lot, yeah. Yeah. A lot of, lot, of, lot of hitting for sure. I would um, say maybe milder concussions in rugby. Probably so. Yeah. It doesn't really break, break out exactly which type of concussions. Uh, but rugby's number one, football's number two, boys' ice hockey is number three. Those are some rough sports. Yeah, for sure. So, the, so, so far, it's making sense. Boys' lacrosse, number four. The, you know, these are all tough guy sports, you know. So, I we, get we, the most don't, high impact know, sports. This is an international study. You can tell by the rugby, ice hockey, and lacrosse. Yeah. Although, up in the northeast, there's a lot of lacrosse and ice hockey. Not a lot where I grew up or rugby. Yeah. And uh, and number five it turns out is girls soccer. Ooh, girls soccer. Yeah, that's a that's a surprise. So what I read is that their skulls are a little thinner, and they don't have as much neck strength to uh, absorb the I impact see. of heading the ball. Right. Or overall, just absorbing any impact to the head while the player is in a process of going up for a header, because the majority of the injuries actually occur with player on player contact and not specifically with the ball hitting the player's head. Um, so know what they did across, I think, most, not I don't know about high school soccer, but peewee soccer, they don't allow heading. No heading in boys or girls soccer. Probably You'll see smart. that in a lot of leagues. That makes sense, yeah, because that's, 
That's crazy. And girls uh, overall have a higher rate of concussions than boys. Mm -hmm. They represent a greater proportion of all injuries in girls' sports than in boys' sports. I think it has a lot to do with just the anatomy. Right. And right behind girls' soccer is girls' lacrosse. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so... Uh, so number seven is boys. You're gonna go down the whole top wrestling. ten. Well, yes, I am. Yeah, just a ten. Just a I ten. Boys wrestling is no, is number seven. Uh, eight is girls field hockey. Nine is girls basketball, and number ten is boys soccer. So that's that's fascinating. Yeah. Yep. So you can get concussed in just about any high school sport. By far, the leader. What like the leaders are. Essentially, after the top five, you start dropping below average. But and essentially, every sport you're at risk for having a concussion. And even in sports, you wouldn't necessarily think like soccer. It's like the NFL has kind of gotten a pretty bad rep because I mean, even though they you know have have a higher incidence than these other sports, it's not like it's the only sport where you get concussion. Yeah, and therefore are at risk for CTE. Maybe it's it's because they they get those major hits where the guys do get knocked out. They're, they have the obvious concussions where the, the the limbs go stiff and there's a little bit of the eyes rolling rolling well, in the back of their head. Well, think about it though. They're they're one of the few sports on this list where they're wearing you know a, a really sturdy helmet, it all, which I mean, also you know, can be used you're not as a weapon. A helmet in basketball. You're not wearing a helmet in field hockey. Yeah. You're, not, you're not wearing a helmet in wrestling. Well, I guess you're kind of wearing the the thing that the ear earmuffs. Yeah. Well, that's like protect um, you from getting cauliflower. Yeah. So you know, but you're not you're not wearing a helmet, and then you know, certainly not in uh, soccer. How did you feel when the NFL? Because now we're going to jump to the NFL because you knew where we were going to the NFL. How did you feel when they started making all these rule changes with regards to not only the concussion protocol, which we'll get honestly, into, but about the the penalties? Honestly, man, look. I just feel like I'm all about competition. You know, I played football when I was a kid, and, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I loved the whole thing. You weren't a headhunter, though. But, no, of course You're not. You're a little soft. No, absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. I, I, I love to hit. Um, <laughs> but, no, I actually prefer defense. I'm not going to lie. All right, all I, prefer, right. I, I, I feel I, you. I, I, I like defense. But at the end of the day, though, the safety of these guys, you know, is just is paramount. You got to make that... You have to prioritize these men's lives over the entertainment value. And I think that there are ways, and I think they've invented ways of still providing a great product on the field without resorting to like those super powerful high impact collisions or, you know, you know what I mean? I think, especially when it comes to above the the shoulders, you know, above the shoulders and below the knees. So you're a proponent of the targeting rule where player gets targeted 15 yards, can get kicked out of the game in college. Yeah, I'm a proponent of, honestly, yeah, it's, it's got to be like kind of like they do in the NBA where it's like a flagrant and okay. then one more and you're out. You Same know, with or de- if it's defenseless, like a high degree flagrant. defenseless receiver as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. No okay. doubt. You know, it's because we before we didn't really know the consequences. I mean, we just didn't know, you know, the research wasn't there, but you we don't know, think you don't let me play devil's we know, advocate. But we know here. it now. We know, we know what happens. You didn't you know? think players knew that it wasn't healthy to get hit in the head. Of course they knew that it, it wasn't. Well, they knew based on how they felt afterwards, you know, but I, I don't think that they had any real sense that there were going to be long-term changes. And especially, stuff that comes back to haunt after like 20 years have passed, 30 years have passed after the sport. And I think even more to that, especially not the the psychiatric issue. Right. 
the dementia and things like that. I don't the think memory these guys, issues, the, sl- the cognitive slowing, the the depression, the mania, the irritability, the aggression, the suicidality. Yeah, they definitely didn't. <laughs> I don't think any of. I honestly have a strong, strong feeling that homicidal tendencies as well. If, if many of these guys knew up front that there was a chance even if it's a small chance, but a chance that they could become suicidal uh, as a result of the sport, they might they might think twice about it. It's another debate for another time. Is, is it worth being able to live? Uh, would you rather live one day as a lion rather than a thousand years as a sheep? Do you want to, at the very minimum, sign your, your bare bones contract, which is still a hell of a lot more than a normal run-of-the-mill nine-to-five job pays, and then idealistically have that opportunity to sign a multi-million dollar contract where you're playing 5, 10, maybe even 15 years in your childhood game that you love, and maybe you have an opportunity to have your own signature shoe or sign a endorsement deal with Nike or star in a Gatorade commercial or even have the opportunity to, to act in a movie. Do you want to transcend sports? Do you want to live this life of fortune and fame for, for 5, 10, maybe even 15 years is it mm-hmm. worth it? You know, if by the I, time you're forty or fifty, I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help answer this question in the most practical way possible. I think the fame and the the reputation, uh, the celebrity that comes along with professional sports, I think that's honestly a, a very small part of it. I think the biggest part of it is you have a lot of guys that come from working class and below backgrounds. And being a professional athlete, becoming a professional athlete, even if you're like the guy that's not even getting any playing time. I mean, you're just talking about just even the basic, most basic entry-level contract. It's like winning the lottery for these guys. Yeah, I mean, it's like you're talking about Especially if you can if you can churn out ten years, I mean, you're talking about the potential to create a financial legacy that could take care of your entire family and potentially even your you know future generations. You know, if I don't you, think if you, you can put a enough. price on that. No, you're changing the trajectory of your name. Oh yeah, you're, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So is it worth it? I would I would have to say yeah. I mean, especially especially if you know that you have that level like, of yeah. talent. You know, a lot of guys. So th- you have to you have to know your number. You know, you have to know where you stand. And it may be that you're you're going to peak in college, and therefore it's all about just using that scholarship to you know its full advantage, which is certainly worth a lot in and of itself. You know, they put you through your, yourself through college and get that degree. That's great. Maybe they'll get their degree, but how often do they take advantage of that degree or actually invest time in that? And are they able to invest time and actually, maybe they get a degree, but are they actually learning or studying or developing connections outside of the football field? You know, I think it really depends on how you utilize your off-season time. And, but it's important to, to know because you may not get drafted and it may not work out and you're going to have to figure out life beyond college just because you were on the team doesn't always mean you're going to be able to get a job within that, you know, on that team or, or yeah. within that sport and coaching or anything like that. I mean, you, you may have to go out there and get a job, a real job. Um, 
it's all. I think it's all about self uh, awareness, self awareness, yeah, or awareness of, of the path you choose. It's almost like when we we prescribe a medication for for a patient who walks in, we give them the risks, the side effects, and, and the benefits. Yeah. And you're aware right there. You know what are the risks, what are the benefits, and you kind of weigh those options and you go with whichever one you thinks. If if the benefits outweigh the risks, you you you, you take the medication. In this situation. A life of football is the medication, and you got to weigh whether the benefits of that outweigh the risks. Yeah. Um, so I think the main thing is now that it's out there, everyone knows. And if people make the decision to play NFL, they know what they're risking, um, but they also know what the benefits are. I think that if you're a professional athlete, it's just, it, it has such a broader significance, especially in the African American community, because. It's it's interesting, man. I, I just to digress for a moment. By I'm a means. I'm a pretty big fan of um, of stand up comedy, and uh, this one guy I really like, his name is Gerard Carmichael. He was doing this one stand up show. I think it was out here in L. A. Um, and I watched it on on TV, uh, and and he was kind of like he was he was killing it. I mean, he was just he had this one this one part of this segment that just. I, I was with him, I was riding with him just in terms of just like laughing out loud just hysterically for like the first 15 minutes. And then he like did this one segment where it just kind of had me dazed for a minute. I wasn't laughing anymore, just like, whoa, like that's crazy. And what he was talking about was he, he kind of threw some crazy one liner out there about how he might be, I think he said something like the eighth most important black person any of y'all know or something like really crazy like that and um i had to think about that for a minute i was like i mean a lot you know it was like at first it just seemed so absurd <laughs> it was like what the fuck is you know this guy talking about you know and then he kind of like went on to be like kind of just started naming people mm-hmm. right <laughs> obviously you know you throw out i don't know jay-z is pretty like popular right probably universally known Barack Obama, maybe Cory Booker. Now he's the presidential candidate, you know. I mean, but it, it you start to kind of go down this list, right? And then you you kind of like realize after like maybe 10 or 15 names, 20 names that like it starts to get slim pickings in terms of like, yeah, I mean, we don't really have like any, you know, I shouldn't say any, that's, that's not true, but very many, you know, like, high-level corporate executive leaders like in business and, you know, like tech, the tech, these tech giants, you Mm -hmm. know, like the Bill Gates of the world and, you know, the Elon Musks, you know, these, these people, I mean, they're all white men by and large. And you look across like various industries and, you know, people in influential positions, politics, et cetera. And it is not, there's not that many. And then, but then, you know, when you look into sports and entertainment though, that's when you see a lot of very influential people and people that quote unquote really matter and people that can really, really have a platform to make an impact and, and, and provide a, a message. And again, going back to, to where we started within the black community, if you once you achieve the level of professional athlete, it's more than just you are an athlete for a living. Like you're a powerful figure in your community with so a like platform. A, a representative. Yes, and that's a big deal. That even goes beyond yeah. the the wealth. some added pressure there. Yeah, 
but yeah, Armin, thanks for that commentary because it's it's a different perspective than what I had growing up. Um, growing up a, a young white male in in the South and Tennessee and Midwest and Indiana, um, my idols were sports heroes, and it just so happens all my sports heroes, King Griffey Jr. Barry Sanders, uh, I used to watch Anthony Hardaway on NBA on NBC on the weekends. They just so happened to be African-American. Um, so that's kind of what I saw. And, and if I'm thinking back, I don't know if I paid attention to much of anything else other than, than sports at that time. Um, I, I couldn't even tell you who the presidents were back then, although I do know that they were white males, obviously. And, and I know that that's me coming from a, a place of of comfort and um, I had that ability to, to, to just sit back and watch sports and, and just fall in love with sports and all my idols were, were just so happened to be these African-American athletes and obviously I looked up to family members as well but I didn't really see the big picture kind of like what you're alluding to and, and I appreciate that perspective and I think I think Armin you're, you're on to a, an idea of a new podcast that we should do uh, soon but Kind of going back to our uh, original topic is, I do think the the benefits outweigh the risks, but mm. the risks are severe, and I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you just gave a really impassionate speech to. Uh, now I'm back on the side of siding with the NFL and all the rule changes they've made, because mm. <laughs> uh, it wasn't it was initially annoying when your favorite like you oh it's awesome hit and oh you get flagged for it and the team still gets a first down and maybe your favorite player gets ejected from the game. Yeah. And now you see these low hits now, and some people are getting their knees taken out. But I think overall, people are figuring out and learn how to, to kind of tackle. That's, that's all. It just, they had to they had to tr- get trained yeah, on on exactly. how to how to do things a little bit differently. They're pros. Yeah, and now we got they're the, pros. So they to me, you know, this is just part of yeah. being a professional. You know, you need to yeah. learn a different style. I think people just get annoyed. I think society is in general is becoming softer. You watch the NBA, and every, people are flopping left and right. Draymond Green just had a quote that he won't his kid was like flopping around the house and he was like, you're watching too much NBA. I think people are letting that kind of seep into their brains a little bit, but these are the, these are right decisions. And we have kids now growing up that not a lot of kids are even playing tackle football. They're playing that seven on seven. They're, they're wearing kind of like lightly padded helmets. So we're going to have a new age here, but it's, it's still so exciting. So whatever. Yeah. NFL is not hurting. No. Okay, they're not hurting off of I mean, this whole concussion it, thing. I mean, it's it's a real thing. It could it could have impacted them. I mean, but I think you you kind of heard the spike and oh, I'm not going to let my kid play football. But I mean, maybe hold, you hold him out a little bit and but play seven on seven. You know, but if he's good, he's got talent. I feel you on that. It could have been a, a big deal for the NFL, but I think they handled it very gracefully. Really do. I think that they embraced the changes. The NFL did at least. Let me talk about what they've done because they've done yeah, a lot, and they I didn't realize how much they did until I looked into this. Yeah. So they have this. They have what's called the NFL Head, Neck, and Spine Committee. So it's a board of independent and NFL affiliated physicians and scientists that essentially developed this NFL Game Day concussion diagnosis and management protocol. This was originally created in 2011. It's kind of continued to be tweaked over the years. So right now, like I said before, you get a preseason assessment. This includes a physical exam and that neuropsych testing I was talking about where they ask you those questions. Oh, do you remember those three words I told you to remember? Let me think about this. Okay. One of them was orange. Okay. One that was honesty. Okay. The first one was... Ball. 
There you go. Got nice it. Nice work, dude. Yeah. Right on. All right, you're good. That was your baseline. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you get all this, kind of these preseason assessments, and then you go into the season, right? So this is what they got going on to make the diagnosis or to look out for people who might have brain trauma on on the playing field. So they have a sideline unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant, which mm. they call a sideline UNC or a sideline UNC. I'm going to call it an UNC. I like that. So unk. this person is a physician, board certified. They could either be board certified in neurology, emergency medicine, PMNR, which is physical medicine rehabilitation, sports medicine, or neurosurgery. So you're talking about some board certified kids here. And then you have a head team physician or what they call a dedicated team TBI, traumatic brain injury physician. And then you have a video unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant. He's in the box, right? He's up in the booth. They also they call that the booth UNC, the booth uh, unk. His own box seats. So he's up there. He's not up there by himself. He's up there with booth certified athletic trainer spotter. Wow. Booth ATC spotter. So this is a huge investment. Yeah. So you got one of these. Doctors don't come cheap. You got two of these trainers, (laughs) one for each team. You got these guys up in the booth. They're watching live. They're watching replays. And they're eagle eyes looking for any signs or symptoms of a concussion or any big hit that they think might have caused a concussion. Honestly, you can just offer me a, a game ticket and I would do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Exactly. That shit. So you got eyes on the field and you got eagle eyes up in the stands. They're taking this serious. Yeah. And these guys, these these unks, unaffiliated, meaning they're impartial, they're not affiliated with the NFL, they have the ability to, if, if the player they identify who, who needs an assessment for a concussion, if that player does not get an assessment immediately on the sideline, they can call it what's a medical timeout. Wow. They can stop the game to get that assessment for that player. Have we seen any of those? I'm sure we have. We just Probably. didn't know what was didn't going on. We didn't realize it was, wow. Yeah. So I don't know if we actually have seen. That's interesting. It's no, all it's possible. It's yeah. entirely possible. Maybe they just put this all out there, and it, it it's just kind of for show. But I'm hoping this is real. <laughs> Can you imagine, though? Yeah. Like so, a, a doctor like you yeah. know, swinging a game because he calls <laughs> a timeout at a critical moment. So you, get, you have to get a sideline assessment right then and there by these physicians. And they have what they call specifically these no-go symptoms or signs, meaning that if you have any of these signs or symptoms, you can't go back on the playing field or practice field under any circumstances that same day. These are loss of consciousness. Okay. Gross motor instability. That's essentially identified by the player's behavior. So someone who's wobbling back and forth. It's like a seizure. You know, mm-hmm. nasty, gross, yeah. nasty confusion or amnesia. <laughs> Honestly, though, how many times have you seen a player stumble off to the sidelines? Need to be like Actually, caught by no, opposing, but caught true. by a teammate and comes back in like three plays later. Absolutely. And even they say here, if you they have like the the fencing posture, that immediate seizure, then that's a loss you of know consciousness. That's bad. But you've you seen, see the fencing posture, you you are. You know. <laughs> but you've seen players return to the field, even I think this past season. So they might need to t- tighten it up a little bit, yeah, but uh, <laughs> they're, I like these things, man. So here, here's yeah. the thing. If someone gets diagnosed with a concussion, they have to follow a five-step process before they can get cleared to fully practice or participate in an NFL game. And this process includes, number one, rest and recovery. During this rest and recovery, guess what they're doing? What are they doing? They're doing those baseline tests, those cognitive tests that I just gave you. Of course, you. yeah. So you, you have to hit those tests and get back, back to your baseline. 
once you get back to your baseline, you can do light aerobic exercise. And then after that, you can add in a little strength training and then you can get to football specific activities. And then the last final step is full football activity and clearance. Right. But you have to get cleared not only by your team physician, but you have to get cleared by independent neurological consultant or an INC assigned to the team that's impartial or supposed to be impartial. Wow. I told you once before, I and mean, I have spoke with a team psychiatrist, which I'm assuming is not far off from a from one of these non-affiliated or affiliated neurologists. So I'm assuming there's a little bit of a, he's good, bro. Come on. It's been long enough. He's ready to go. We got playoffs coming up. Yeah. It's gotta he, there's got to be. I mean... Especially, so they work for the team. They're like, no, they're not supposed to though. Or they work for the NFL. That's that's yeah. the question. Well, they're not. I don't even think they're supposed to be. I, th- I think they're supposed to be independent from the NFL. But obviously, the NFL hired them. So, <laughs> what do you think? You think these independent sideline neurologists are? Do uh, you think they're impartial, or do you think they're they're getting their elbows greased a bit, their beaks wet a little Man, bit? It there? is so hard to say. I mean, you know, I I think about like who hired them. I mean, yeah. are they are they NFL employees? Are they are they team employees? They're supposed to. I don't. They're not. They're not affiliated with the team. Okay. But they have to be hired by the NFL, right? There's no like commission of football. But I mean, Tom Brady yeah. goes down first quarter of the Super Bowl with a. He's a little wet and wet, wacky and wobbly. Yeah. <laughs> he's a little wobbly. Right. Uh, Gross. I, I, I'm betting. I'm betting. Yeah, he might, he's going to be coming back. So. But yeah. Well, listen. You're right. You're right. But that undermines the the you know, the value yeah, of these the, the medical these assessment, right? Yeah, well, there's the bottom line, and I think that's ultimately what uh, the NFL cares about. And unfortunately, I think the discussion, the debate has to be there as to whether... Well, here's the thing, is, too. Well, here's is the, patient yeah, autonomy. Yeah. Patient autonomy, right? Let's think about it. Even, even though I can give you my medical opinion, right, and make a recommendation... You as the patient, you always have the right to make your own decision. Yeah. But here's the kicker. As long as you have capacity. Yeah. (laughs) It's a different story. Liability, though. Right. Right. That's that's, Liability. And NFL cares about that bottom line. You know NFL knew about this long before that movie Concussion came out, long before the hysteria about CTE came out. But they started making changes right around that time because of what? the bottom line because they right. they were seeing that this could have affected their bottom line yeah and that's why they made the pivot. The program looks great on paper don't let them fool you they did not make this pivot because they cared about the health of the athletes oh that's controversial but yeah i mean well I, let's 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 say it like this let's put it like this that the the health of the athlete was not their number one priority yeah it was a priority it was a target, um, and I think it was a. It had to be a priority because it was the kind of the driving force behind the whole process. But yeah, bottom line is um, the financial impact. Well, let's talk about one of the probably the, one of the most famous cases of a player who, I guess, at the time you didn't really realize it, but after the fact, after autopsy revealed he had CT advanced CT was the words used by the neurology neural pathologist. Aaron Hernandez. Hmm. Right. Armin is a huge Tom Brady fan, so he definitely was. Yeah. Guy had a lot of promise. Yeah. A lot of potential. You know, could have kind of, kind of uh, been the beneficiary of, of many Super Bowl championships and 
Unfortunately, his life was derailed let me, ultimately by CTE. Well, well, let me get let me let well, me start well, right, from the so beginning let's, here. Let's go, yeah. yeah, right. No. So let's go back. Let's anyone back. has an opportunity and is interested in CTE, the NFL or Aaron Hernandez specifically, I want to encourage you to go listen to the podcast by the Boston Globe. It's called Gladiator. It's a six-part series. Um, actually, FX just got the rights to it, so I think they're going to do a documentary or docu-series. That should be interesting. Nice, so maybe yeah. you, you don't have to go listen to the podcast. You can wait. But it starts out by detailing his childhood. And before we get started, I want to make sure to say that everything that we discuss is either on this podcast or is public record or public knowledge, and we're not trying to make any assumptions as to what is what actually went on or give any diagnoses or give our expert opinions on on what specifically went on with regards to the Aaron Hernandez case. Rather, we just want to highlight the facts that are available and talk in general about how stressors can culminate in combination with concussion leading to CTE and ultimately end up in tragedy. And then overall, we just want to use this as an educational case. So going back to Aaron Hernandez, he grew up in Bristol, Connecticut, came from rough times. So his father was physically abusive towards him and his older brother. And it was noted to be constant almost daily. His father was an alcoholic. His parents actually got divorced and remarried. He was also noted to be sexually abused as a child from the age six years and on. Eventually led to using marijuana and becoming dependent on marijuana. So, so basically, a super chaotic household. Oh, and, and it, just, yeah. we talk about adverse childhood events, and for every single adverse childhood event you have, you're at more risk for mental illness down the road. Also, there was rumors that his father created like a homophobic household, would use kind of the slur words all the time, directed towards him and his brother. So, the Boston Globe actually had access to letters and telephone conversations that Aaron had with his mom during his last year or so in jail. And he had talked about how he was diagnosed with ADHD and he was asking his mom, why didn't you treat my ADHD? And there's actually some quotes we found in in the article that they wrote um, that where his mom said, yeah, I knocked you over in the head with a freaking hammer. That was your medication. And she would equate, she would equate ADHD medication with cocaine. She would say, quote unquote, that's what Adderall is. B-L-O-W, going on saying, cocaine dipshit, that's what Adderall is like. Unbelievable. Well, is that unbelievable? Because I've actually, I've heard a lot of people say that. I mean, Adderall is amphetamines, right? <laughs> it is a stimulant. Yeah, no, that, actually that part is, she she, well, she had, she was close. She, she, yeah, she, should we, I'm, I'm, should we I'm break just, a little education pearl down here? Drop a little means, pearl? I was just kind of shocked that, you know, somebody would say something like that to their child, but. yeah. I mean, you know, but uh, so it's crazy. Adderall is a stimulant. Adderall is amphetamine, closely related to methamphetamine. But Adderall is in a much more controlled dosage, probably 10 times lower of a dose than you would get in street meth. And amphetamines affect dopamine in your brain. They not only release it, but they prevent the reuptake. So essentially increasing dopamine in your brain from two different angles. Cocaine is also a stimulant, also affects dopamine, but cocaine just prevents the reuptake. So only increasing dopamine from one angle in your brain. Essentially what that means is meth is like cocaine on cocaine. Yes, for sure. But Adderall is a very controlled, tiny dose of meth. I don't think that's helping the cause with me distancing it from cocaine. But but here's the thing. 
that I, I, there is an important principle here, and that is that the street drugs, many of them have pharmaceutical and pharmacological roots. So many of them uh, at one time were used clinically and were actual treatments. But the difference between a recreational and street product and what you get from a physician and you know through a pharmacy, these are controlled doses. These are controlled substances. They are monitored for safety. And you can, you know, there's no guarantees on anything in life, but you can make very strong assurance. You have very strong assurances that if you take that at the recommended dose, you will have a mostly positive, if not you know, fully positive experience. Mm-hmm. The street drugs, they're not, they're com- the doses are completely under You don't even know what control. you're getting. You have no idea what you're taking. Yeah. And when you can control the dose and regulate the dose of just about any chemical, you can essentially take from it the, the positive. You know, that's what we've essentially done is figured out how we can release the positive while also sort of avoiding or preventing the negative effects of the substance. Yeah, definitely. You know, by understanding it, the, our bodies and our bodies' physiologies and then understanding that, that substances, you know, pharmacology and understanding how the two should interact. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the difference. Yep, and years and years of trial and error and we have evidence-based studies that show the safety and efficacy of these medications. And Adderall, if you have ADHD and it is untreated, it can lead to a lot of risk factors. Untreated ADHD causes an increased risk of sudden, like, accidental deaths, substance abuse, divorce, early pregnancy, traffic tickets, getting Whoa. fired from your job. There you go. Like, a- untreated ADHD can cause a lot of difficulties down the road, not to mention it's associated with increased risk of depression and arrests and different things. So, so treating ADHD with these low-dose stimulants um, is really effective, extremely effective for someone who actually has ADHD. Now, if you don't have ADHD and you take an Adderall XR 30 milligrams, you might feel like you're on speed all day. You might. But that's because you are. Now, <laughs> so, now we have to ask ourselves, uh, how could ADHD treatment have helped Aaron Hernandez? Well, we'll never know because we never evaluated Aaron Hernandez and we're getting all this information secondhand. But if you're looking at an individual that has a history similar to this, then absolutely I think treating the ADHD would benefit. Um, You're going to help with the impulsivity, which may decrease the likelihood of smoking cannabis, which decreases the likelihood of a cannabis use disorder. Um, You also may be less abrasive or annoying to your parents. If you're running around with untreated ADHD, you're going to be a nuisance. And and unfortunately or not, if you have abusive parents, they're more likely to abuse you if you're a nuisance, uh, which may lead to more violence and possibly PTSD down the line. So it increases your risk for a lot of different things. And, and there's a lot going on here with a history like this. But regardless, going back to Aaron Hernandez, he was great on the football field. And he, he got a scholarship to one of the best college, probably the best college football program at the time. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. they came off a national title that same year he came in. Urban Meyer. Uh, Urban Meyer. So he actually was convinced by Urban Meyer to graduate early, even though his high school coach didn't want him to, because he's 17. So he joined Florida at 17 in January of 2007. This was the same year I think Urban Meyer signed a, 
or actually he had signed a few years earlier, he'd signed a mega contract with Florida at the time. So he's the head coach. And essentially they, they talk about how while he was there, that's when some other things started to unravel. The casual fan would notice he's, he was a stud tight end, by the way, in the SEC. They, I think they won the national tam- championship his second year there back in, in 2008, 2009 season. He actually won the Mackey Award for the being the best tight end in 2009. Well, that casual, team he played on uh, was, was considered Tim to be one of the greatest college football teams of all time. It hates, yeah, that, went, that ultimately went to the pros. It hurts me to say it. I actually saw them play in Neyland Stadium once. Uh, wow. They blew out my Tennessee Volunteers and pretty much have been ever since. Um, but you notice, I think I remember seeing like wow, he came back his junior year and he all of a sudden he had these tat sleeves. I was, I was like, ooh, that's interesting. Not that there is anything wrong with tattoos because I have tattoos myself, but it was interesting. Like where do you get all that cash to get a full tat sleeve? But anyways... He was a stud, you know, but you started seeing tattoos. You started seeing he took a selfie with a gun. Reports that he was getting in fights at bars. Actually, there was reports like his first season in September 2007. He was um, actually ID'd, identified as a gunman in a double shooting. Anyways, that was kind of swept on the rug. I guess Florida had a really good lawyer at the time for the team. Despite all this, there was reports that Urban Meyer essentially told him after his junior year, like, yeah, you have to turn pro. Because this whole time he was getting popped for marijuana use. Despite all this, he he, he enters the draft as well in the combine and gets drafted by, guess who? New England Patriots, That's baby. your squad, dude. No doubt. Billy Belichick. Drafted the same year as uh, Gronkowski, actually. He was uh, oh, wow. in 2010. Man, they won the sweepstakes that year. Damn. Did they, though? Come on. Well, so, I mean... They- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was wild because that was insane tight end tandem they had. Yeah, that's they made the I Super Bowl. Was, those are some good years. They made the Super Bowl in his uh, second year. Mm-hmm. That's right. uh, he actually caught a touchdown in the Super Bowl. They lost that Super Bowl, though. It was against the Giants. Eli Manning, legend. So after that Super Bowl season... No comment. He signed a five-year, $40 million contract. That included wow. $16 million of Think guaranteed about that money. For a minute, man. $40 million. And a $12.5 I mean, million dollar signing bonus. Guess what? The highest signing bonus ever given to an NFL tight end. That's incredible. So talk about potential. Talk about promise. So this this kid, this guy went from Yeah, he's still a being, kid at this be, time. Being, you know, the twenty two. The abused, sexually and physically neglected kid from wrong side of the tracks in Bristol, Connecticut to the uh, $40 million man. So shortly after this, it was less than a year after signing this huge deal in uh, June of 2013. Someone he was friends with actually passes away, dies of being murdered. And just a few days after that, they start going after him for the murder. Hmm. Eventually gets charged for the murder of Odin Lloyd and he gets found guilty of first degree murder in 2015. So in 2013, so 2012 would be the last season. 2012, 2013 would be right. the last season he plays with the Patriots. Okay. I think they lost in the um, AFC Championship that year to the Ravens, maybe. Anyways, that was the last game he had. So he would have been 23 at the time. So murders, someone gets charged with, gets a life sentence in 2015. And while on trial for this, well, before he gets that life sentence, while he was on trial, he actually got indicted for that double homicide that we were talking about at the University of Florida back in 2012. Eventually, he was acquitted on those charges. And But then a few days after that, 
he was found that he, he hung himself in his uh, jail cell at the age of 27. Hmm. Interesting to note, he, he had poured shampoo on the floor, cardboard under the door, no suicide note, but that's pretty obvious that that would have been a suicide. And he, I guess he, they said he, would, he smoked K2 within 30 hours of the death. Hmm. And I guess K2, ketamine? Hmm. Yeah. And cause psychosis yeah, and high doses. Yeah, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he checked out. So after his death, he had an autopsy done, and Boston University released a statement diagnosing him with brain injuries consistent with CTE. And they said stage three out of four at the time of his death. So he's only 27 years old. Stage three out of four is pretty severe. Yeah. And they say in the statement, CT is associated with aggressiveness, explosiveness, impulsivity, depression, memory loss, and other cognitive changes. That's a lot to handle. So you got to think about how much the, the onset of CTE influenced his behavior. Well, you want to jump to saying... Well, CTE caused him to kill himself. Football caused him to kill no, no, himself. That's my not. gut reaction. Absolutely not. That's de- and exactly. It's a gut reaction. It's not an informed uh, opinion. Um, well, not many people know about his childhood. And that, but that changes everything. I mean, when you when you understand that that piece of the puzzle, it's such an important one. But I do ask myself to what extent, and you you have to ask yourself to what extent his having CTE as a result of those head injuries, which he would have started having as far back as childhood mm-hmm. when his mother was beating him with a hammer, you know, uh, and then, of course, maybe, on the football yeah, maybe field. Maybe even before he started playing football. Yeah, but, but those head injuries, they had to have had some impact. I'm thinking if he was the worst case of anyone they had seen his age before, then he probably had an earlier onset than most. We were talking earlier about predisposition to having your your brain be more sensitive to head trauma. And I think this is a perfect example of that. Being born to um, substance-using parents, and then he's born to an, into an environment where his father's an alcoholic. He's, he's getting physically abused. He's getting sexually abused. Sounds like emotional abuse as well. Well, wow, those little micro-traumas. Yeah, and they, they, those can can cause changes in your your ability to react to threat. It can ca- they can cause brain changes changes essentially. Maybe there's some neglect leads you to marijuana use. You start using marijuana. Yeah, that's always a, a coping skill. Yep, self medicating environments. Yeah, coping mechanism. Maladaptive coping. Skill. Maladaptive. Yeah. So because we talked about before marijuana use before the age of 26 can cause brain changes, make you more susceptible to substance use, make you more irrational, impulsive, aggressive. Absolutely. In itself, because you're, you're diminishing your ability for your frontal lobe to, to establish itself. And your frontal lobe is your decision-making center. It controls your, it inhibits you from making stupid decisions. When you drink alcohol, it diminishes your frontal lobe. That's why you feel less inhibited and a little bit more loosey-goosey. But you wouldn't want to go about your life drunk all the time. Right. Why, why'd you laugh? Well, some people would. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know people that uh, Yeah, I guess most people so. probably wouldn't. But So what I'm trying to say is he was already down a path. Without a doubt, the repeated head traumas definitely took their toll. And in combination, in the setting of all, all this history, this predisposition, this, this one hit, second hit, third hit, I'm not just talking about the hits to the head. I'm talking about that three-hit hypothesis, his, his genetics, his childhood, the substance use, the molestation, the physical yeah. abuse, yeah, and the head it, trauma. It has a cumulative effect. There it is, cumulative effect. I like that. 
Yeah. Tell us about that. So we're talking about all the, the different types of traumatic experiences that Aaron Hernandez had growing up and how they may have contributed to psychiatric illnesses later in life. And the way we kind of in, envision this is so, you know, all of us have our own unique tolerances for stress, our own abilities to tolerate stress. And, you know, in, in a previous episode, we talked about this, tar- this, this, this notion of resilience and how resilience uh, speaks to our ability to withstand stressors and continue to function at at least a normal level, if not high level, in spite of significant pressures and forces that may be you know, operating against you in your environment. Keeping that in mind, there is a point for everyone where there's a, a threshold a maximum point at which, you know... A point of no return. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, exactly, a point of no return where the mind can only withstand and tolerate but so much more stress before it just sort of, um, you know, starts to, to uh, decompensate. I think in the case of uh, Aaron Hernandez, I mean, he was just, you know, there was just so much that he was going through uh, in his childhood that seemed to be just recurrent stressors, just kind of very consistent negative forces in his life, times in, in childhood where he felt unsafe, that's going to be very stressful for a young child. Yeah. Um, how can you, and we talked about this in the last episode, how yeah. can you develop that sense of self, that confidence in yourself, if you don't even have that safe environment, right. that holding environment created by your family? Yeah. It's no. tough. It's, it's very difficult. And then, you know, you throw in the illicit substance use, you know, very early in life. And we talked before, and you, you mentioned earlier about the impact of cannabis, high-dose cannabis in particular, on a, a, an early maturating brain. You know, there goes another, th- another thing, another insult. Yeah. Um, and so there's a really fascinating emerging field in uh, research in like, neuroscience, and, and that's epigenetic impact and epigenetic factors and, and how those influences can, you know, really affect what happens later in life. Uh, that's an intense topic that I think we'll, we're going to have to break down at some point. But Yeah, we will. Unfortunately, we don't want to, or fortunately, we're not going to overwhelm you guys today. Yeah. <laughs> essentially, CTE is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's, a, it's essentially kind of a delayed presentation of irreversible degenerative brain disease that affects people who've sustained repeated concussions or they could be subconcussive hits they can be that you got you attained so much head trauma but it was never to the point where that a singular head trauma caused you to have a noticeable concussion that's the scary part about it me and you can both have ct right now possibly it's, yeah it's entirely maybe possible. like we both can identify maybe one concussion we had in the past and we didn't even play sports that long you had your skiing i mean i've, I've snowboarded several times and maybe i have had one um so who knows? But 100% NFL players are at risk. And now, as we know, female soccer players. Got to work on the, those trap muscles, ladies. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, and, and CT can cause, we already went over what concussion can cause. CT can cause all that as well, including suicidality, violent behaviors, memory loss, depression, but we're getting closer. We're actually, they've been able to diagnose CT now in, in living humans using a, uh, a PET scan. Um, they use a radioactive tracer called FDDNP to bind to tau proteins. 
The only mention, I wanted to mention tau proteins because that's how you diagnose CTE. But that's also what you see in Alzheimer's that's right. or dementia. Yeah. So there's that correlation. So it's scary. And that's what, that's what these NFL players have to think about. And I, evidently these rugby players as well and boxing and MMA and UFC and the list goes on and on man dude. girls basketball just think about if we had to worry about that in our profession as doctors as pod professional podcasters like having word finding difficulties or memory loss I have enough of that at baseline yeah yeah no wouldn't last too long my ACLs are very sturdy though so man I think that's it well Hey, man, this was a good time. I enjoyed talking about this. I hope you all learned a thing or two. And just, I hope uh, you guys didn't get a concussion from listening to this. Yeah, well, it's... Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm having some photophobia right now. Yeah, no, I think it's time to, to shut it down. But listen, great talk. And uh, I think we should um, just... Uh, I think we should check back in next week. Yeah, let's end the stigma. Let's continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.